I want to welcome you this morning. If you're a visitor, a guest, we're glad you're here. We pray that God will speak to you this morning about matters that are important to you, about your relationship with Him. You visit us on a great week. This week is our intermissions conference. It starts Friday night. Um, you should have received one of these on your way in. If you didn't, you can pick one up on your way out. It lays out the weekend, some excellent, excellent opportunities to learn about loving the nations and to pray for them. And Friday night, we'll start with prayer, which I hope by the end of today, you'll, you'll value and treasure more than you do right now. But make a, make a note of that and those events, if you would. Um, we are continuing our study of the Gospel of Matthew, as you can see on the screen. And there's, there's something up there I want to draw your attention to. It's this little phrase right here. Drawing near to the good and mighty king. That's our kind of bumper sticker related to our priority this year as a church family. That as a result of studying the gospel of Matthew in part, we would grow to draw near to Christ and love him more. There's a more complicated statement of our priority this year that lies behind that bumper sticker. It goes like this. Our priority is to advance the congregation at North Wake in our experience of daily communion with Christ in such a way that we love God more, as evidenced in increased affections for God, desire to know Him, eagerness to share Him, and glad obedience to and worship of Him. That's why we have a bumper sticker. But the idea is that in December of this year, you will have drawn near to Christ and love Him more than you did in January of this year. And this year, one of the ways we want to see that happen is through the teaching of Matthew, but also we want to see meaningful relational engagement with God through personal spiritual practices, not just corporate ones. In other words, that church would be, draw you near to Christ as we gather as a church family, but also your, your personal quiet times, your devotional life. This year, you would draw near to Christ in new and powerful ways. And one of those ways, obviously is prayer. Um, it's one that we as pull yourself up by your bootstrap American Christians <clears throat> tend to struggle with. We're, we are not particularly good at prayer. Our missionaries health reports, we, we pull them regularly to make sure they're doing well on the field about their marriages and their ministry and their personal life. Prayer is often a struggle for them. They are too busy doing really important things to set aside the needed time. So if they struggle, how much more do Americans struggle who average nine minutes a day in spiritual practices, according to one survey? Um, my hope today is to encourage you in this matter of prayer. And I'm going to do that through three, looking at three resources. The first resource and the central one that we're going to be preoccupied with is the answer Jesus gave when his own disciples came to him and said, Lord, teach us how to pray. The second resource is uh, a development of that, an application of that. It comes from Martin Luther when his barber came to him and said, Dr. Luther, teach me how to pray. And we'll talk about some of his insights as well. And then the third one is just a real practical way um, that I have found helpful for me in being faithful to pray for those that I believe God has called me to pray for. So, since we're talking about prayer, we probably need to stop and pray. I appreciate your prayers <clears throat> for my, my voice. I yelled at the first service again, those ornery scoundrels in the first service. About lost my voice. 
So um, you'll get the tamer version uh, this time, I'm sure. Would you pray with me? Father, we are in great need of your kindness. We like to run ahead and do things on our own, and we know that does not honor you. And so with our, with our body bowed in a position of humility before you, we confess that and ask for help, that we might learn to pray and honor you by our prayers. We pray this in Christ's name. All right, let's look at Jesus' prayer. Luke tells us that when the disciples came to Jesus, when Jesus was praying, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus said, when you pray, say this. And he taught them what we would call the Lord's Prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, and so forth. So the Lord's Prayer is the answer to Jesus' Disciples question, how should we pray? It is Jesus' instruction for all disciples throughout time. If you want to learn to pray from Jesus, this is how you pray. And we want to try to mine that today from Matthew's account um, in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus <clears throat> excuse me, begins by teaching them how not to pray. Okay, verse 5, Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus basically says, don't pray to impress people. Don't pray to be seen as spiritual. Being seen is way overrated. I love what Walt Disney said. He used the language of celebrity about being seen as important. He says, as far as I can remember, being a celebrity has never helped me make a good picture or command the obedience of my daughter or impress my wife It doesn't even seem to help keep fleas off our dog. And if being a celebrity won't give one an advantage over a couple of fleas, then I guess there can't be that much advantage in being a celebrity after all. Being seen and esteemed by people is overrated. It's overrated not only because of the limited reward of it. Jesus says you're going to get a reward. People are going to think you're important or spiritual. But it will cost you something far greater. Jesus says it will cost you the reward of God. And so Jesus is prompting us with a very simple question. Whenever we pray publicly, whether that's in church or in small group or around the dinner table, the question is, who am I praying to really? There's a variation on that question that can be helpful. Who am I praying at, really? Because parents have been known to pray at their children. Single men have been known to pray at the single ladies in the group, trying to impress them with their profundity in prayer. A frustrated spouse has been known to pray at her husband or his wife. Small group leaders sometimes pray at their small group 
to get them to shape up. Really, the, the pinnacle of temptation for this kind of stuff, this kind of nonsense, Jesus says, is for people like me, who stand up in front of a room full of people and pray. Sometimes I'm tempted to pray a quick review of the sermon. Okay? That's not prayer. That's a review of the sermon. Sometimes I'm tempted to try to sound spiritual, to use the right language, or try to sound authentic or passionate. That's not prayer. Jesus says that's acting. He says that's hypocrisy. Prayer is not really prayer if it's targeted to anyone other than God. Jesus forbids it, and God will not reward it. You wonder why your prayers are not being answered? Maybe it's not prayer at all. But the remedy, Jesus says, in that last verse, <clears throat> excuse me, is when you go in, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus is not anti-public prayers. Just anti-misaimed public prayers. He's anti-show-off prayers, anti-theatrical prayers, anti-pretentious prayers, anti-prayers that are designed to put the focus on me and my spirituality. You know, probably, the honestly, the worst temptation I have with this <clears throat> is an annual event that I go to called a Pastor's Prayer Summit. I go every year to the beach and I spend about three days with between 50 and 100 other pastors from our area. And we do nothing but pray and spend time together. There's no other agenda other than for us to pray together. And so there's 50 or 100 pastors in a room and they start praying. And some of these guys can pray. I mean, they pray like Ricky sings, you know. <laughs> and so when guys are done, when they're done praying, people are going, amen, amen. And then the rest of us pray and it's like quiet. Nobody says anything. And so my temptation, I want to pray a cool prayer. I want to pray a spiritual prayer. I want a prayer that gets, gets the brothers amen in my prayer. So most of the time at the prayer summit, to my shame, I am not permitted to pray aloud because of Jesus' warning here. He forbids it. And God won't reward it because it's not prayer. It's showing off. Some of you have done it. Okay? You should stop it. Don't show off when you pray. The price is way, way too high. So, he, Jesus says pray privately. That's the remedy. Not to the exclusion of public prayer, but develop a private prayer life that's rich. Um, it's interesting, one of the commentators, his name is Dale Bruner, he, he translates that private room as the supply room. And he says that the supply room was the only room in the poor Palestinian farms that could be locked. In one sense, he says it's the least sanctified place in the house. It was used to store feed, small animals, tools, and other supplies. Sounds like a shed. But he says, more importantly, this room's door can be locked. It could be private. 
And that's the supreme consideration. He says it's no longer the Holy of Holies that's a special meeting place between God and the believer. It's the room with a lock. D.A. Carson presses us with these questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? He says that the answers are not enthusiastic affirmatives. We fail the test and fall under Jesus' condemnation. We are hypocrites. But positively, don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He promises that the Father will reward secret Father-targeted prayer. Jesus promises that. If we pray as he's about to teach us, privately, secretly, the Father will reward that. Jesus is promising us that. But he says, don't pray to show off. And he says, don't pray like the nations. He says, when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles or the nations do. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. One of the commentators says that some pagans thought that if they named all their gods, addressed their petitions to each of them, and then repeated themselves a few times, they would have a better chance of receiving an answer. So they were trying to manipulate, to leverage God by their volume of words. It's interesting, uh, several years ago I got to go to a Tibetan uh, Buddhist monastery. And in that monastery, we saw the ways that they prayed. And one of the things they used is a prayer bead, system of prayer beads, kind of like a rosary, if you're familiar with that. And when they would pray through their prayer beads, they would chant their mantra, their prayer. And when they finished the beads, they would have prayed that mantra 10,800 times. It's exactly what Jesus is saying, that's not prayer. We don't impress God by our many words. We don't inform him of our needs in prayer because he already knows. So some of you are tracking with Jesus and at this point you're saying, so why pray? If God already knows, why pray? Well, briefly, prayer humbles us and exalts God as great. It put things in the right order in our souls and in our minds. Prayer is the great declaration of our need for God. It's the great casting of our cares on Him as our loving, sovereign Father in heaven. So prayer has a great effect on our own souls, but that's not the only effect it has. God loves to pour out His powerful mercy when His people pray. James says if you, you don't have because you don't ask. And you don't ask right. The flip side of that is that if you do ask, you will have. God loves to pour out his powerful mercy on his people when they pray. So Jesus is urging us to pray, and now he's going to teach us how. He says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. <clears throat> so, Jesus says, pray like that. Does that mean we just repeat those words? Or does that mean that this is like a model that we work with somehow? And it's interesting, I read you Luke's account of this. 
And in Luke's account, Jesus just says, when you pray, say. And he tells you words. And it sounds like Jesus is endorsing, and I think he is endorsing, the repetition, the meaningful, thoughtful, prayerful repetition of these exact words. Um, there's value in that if it's meaningful. Uh, you know, uh, I live in Franklin County, and Franklin County is kind of behind the times, mercifully. Um, just this year, the ACLU came and told us we could no longer pray in our schools. We've been praying in our schools up until this year. One of the things that has happened then for my boys when they play football, <clears throat> they would gather as a football team, they'd pray the Lord's Prayer. Every game. It sounds like this. Our Father, our heaven, have your name, and come. That's, that's not what Jesus means when he says, when you pray, say. Okay? It's meaningful, reflective, thoughtful recitation of the very words Jesus taught us to pray. And that's what he has in mind. I would highly recommend memorizing this prayer. Most of you have. And it's a value to memorize it in the old King James Version because it gives us a common language. You know, when we say, if we ever recite the Lord's Prayer together as a church family, or if you, if you visit another church or if you play football somewhere where they still let you pray, you'll say, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And we can, we can say that together. So I would recommend learning that old school King James Version teaching that old school King James Version to your kids. The, our kids need to learn this prayer um, so they can learn how to pray. It's interesting, there's a lady from Texas. She says, uh, when our granddaughter was four years old, she came to the table one day in a horribly disgruntled mood. She complained loudly about every dish on the table. And hoping to change the mood, her mother suggested that she, the little girl, give the blessing. And after a sullen pause, she prayed, okay, God, I forgive you for this food. <laughs> so, if left to their own devices, our kids are not going to come up with the best prayers always. So, teach them this prayer. And then teach them how to use it as a guide. And the master at that probably is a guy named Martin Luther. Martin Luther wrote a little... Um, his barber, uh, Peter the barber, he calls him Peter the master barber, um, one day he was cutting Martin Luther's hair and he said, Dr. Luther, will you teach me how to pray? And so Martin Luther, the great Martin Luther, the great reformer, um, wrote back an 11-page letter instructing his barber how to pray. It's fabulous. Um, it's called A Simple Way to Pray. It's free on the internet as a PDF. You can find it on our website if you go to our leader blog um, and poke around there, you'll find something called The Simple Way to Pray. You'll click on that, it'll take you to it. And he teaches his barber how to pray through the Lord's Prayer as a model, how to pray through the Ten Commandments as a model, and how to pray through the Apostles' Creed as a model. And it's full of really rich insights just about prayer, how to build it into your life, like this one. He says, it's a good thing to let prayer be the first business of the morning and the last at night. Brilliant. He says, guard yourself carefully against those false, deluding ideas which tell you, wait a little while. I will pray in an hour. First, I must attend to this or that. Such thoughts get you away from prayer into other affairs which so hold your attention 
and involve you that nothing comes a prayer for that day. It's, it's brilliant. And I commend it to you highly. You should read it this week if you get a chance. Um, and if that doesn't work for you, there's a children's version, okay, by a man named R.C. Sproul. It's called The Barber Who Wanted to Pray. And it's a, ch- it's a version for your kids. And yes, you'll probably get more out of it than they will. But using this prayer as a model, we just expand on each of the requests. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, as a pattern for prayer. And there's great value in it for a number of reasons. Let me give you three reasons why you should use this as a model for prayer. Because Jesus told you to. Okay, That's the first reason. This is how Jesus taught you to pray. You should depart from it very reluctantly. It's not the only way to pray. There's, you know, not the only things to pray about, but as the core pattern that should mark your prayers, you would be hard-pressed to find anyone to give you a better one than Jesus himself. Okay. Secondly, this prayer unites you. It unites us with all believers around the world who pray this same prayer. Historically, the ancient church, when someone would become a believer and was baptized, this is the first prayer they'd learn. And so right now, people are praying this prayer in Europe and in Asia and in Africa. And as we pray with them, we join in these great requests for the advancing of the kingdom of God in the world. It's been prayed that way throughout history. And all around the globe, it's still being prayed. It unites us with them. It makes our prayers not be so me-oriented. For instance, there's there's an old um, anonymous poem. It says, you cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, I. It's not in there. You cannot pray the Lord's Prayer and even once say, my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for one another. And when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It doesn't once say me. Not that you can't use it to pray for yourself. You could and you you should. But it has big, expansive prayers in it, as we'll see in a minute. But a third reason to pray this prayer is because of the amazing promises that are attached to it. We've already seen Jesus is teaching us to pray in a way that the Father will reward. This is it. You want the Father to reward and honor your prayers? Pray this way. Pray these things. Um, Later on in this same sermon, that's important, in the same sermon, Jesus makes these phenomenal prayers. Just a couple of paragraphs later, he says, Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks will be open. Now, scholars tell us that, that there's, a, there's an element of ongoingness about these requests. It's like he's saying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep, keep um, knocking. So it's a call to persevere in prayer, rooted in the goodness of God. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask Him? Persevere in prayer, and you will be rewarded because your Father's good. That's important. 
Don't miss the connection of this passage to what Jesus has just taught in the same sermon earlier about how you should pray. These promises are most happily fulfilled when you pray according to the pattern Jesus is giving us in what we call the Lord's Prayer. Um, this is not a blank check for whatever you ask of God. When I taught this before, I talked about 16-year-olds requesting Hummers with rocket launchers. Okay? God is not going to grant that prayer. He is good, but he's also wise. So, again, most happily, when you pray in the pattern of the Lord's Prayer, you, you walk in the center of these promises, these great, amazing promises. So let's look at these requests that Jesus uses to teach us. There are six of them. Some will say seven, but for our purposes today, we'll group them in six. Two groups of three. The first group is about the Father, and the second group is about us. Let's look at that first group first. Um, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to pray that God would hallow his name, that he would cause his kingdom to come and his will to be done all on this earth as it is in heaven. These are not so much declarations where we'd say, God, your name is hallowed, but they are requests to ask God to come and hallow his name. And that language is archaic. We don't, we don't talk about hallowing much these days. Um, Dale Bruner says, when believers pray, hallowed be your name, they are asking God to be set above us as high and holy, central and important. And so to be God to us and to his people and to the world. The fact that Jesus puts this petition first indicates its priority to him. Our main concern in life should be that God should be exalted and treated as God. That's what it means for God to make his name hallowed. If you could say it this way, please make your real identity known so that we and others will recognize and honor you as you really are. Hallowed be your name. And of course, when we pray that, we are praying with believers all around the world for that to be happening around the world. And we are, in effect, offering our lives up for God to use us towards that end, that we would honor and hallow his name where we live and work and go to school. And then we pray for his kingdom to come. Matt Woodley says that means we're praying, God, by your name and in your character, by your holiness, in your perfect ways, repair, repair this broken world. Take all the broken things and fix them. Take every out-of-joint thing and set it in its proper place. Take all the ugly things and make them beautiful. Take every tragic tale and weave it into a redemption story as you manifest your ultimate kingdom glory even now. But ultimately, this is a prayer. When they pray for the kingdom to come, it's a prayer for the king to come. It's a cry for Jesus to return. Remember, this is a common biblical prayer. Paul closes the book of 1 Corinthians this way with one word. You might have heard it. It's the word Maranatha. It means, come, Lord. Um, it's how the Bible ends. Book of Revelation. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. That's Jesus. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's the next to the last verse in the Bible. 
Do you ever pray that prayer? Do you ever pray that Jesus would come back? Why would you not pray that? Don Carson says we, we, have, we would have no objection to the Lord's return, we think, provided he holds off a bit and lets us finish a degree first or lets us taste of marriage or gives us time to succeed in a business or profession or, or grants us the joy of seeing grandchildren. So will you pray this prayer? Will you pray, Lord, let your kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus says you should. You must pray this. It's just part of our daily rhythm of prayer as God's people. And it's really closely related to that next statement. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To pray longingly for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. For full obedience, wholehearted worship, the absence of sin and all of its train of sufferings and sickness. These three are big global prayers. We're praying for the whole earth. For God's kingdom and will and name to be hallowed on the earth. The whole earth. Of course, we can't pray that for the whole earth without praying it for our little place on the earth. So we're praying that in our work, we would honor God's name. We're praying that the kingdom would advance in the halls of our school. That God's will would be done in my own home, in my own life. When I'm praying these prayers, I'm committing to do His will personally as well as to pray for it globally. Um, I wonder if our failure to pray these things is one of the reasons that the kingdom has lagged. And there are still places on the earth that are demonic strongholds where the name of Jesus has never been heard. You, you heard about it from Keith. They told that story and all but three people in that room of some 17 people had never heard the story of the birth of Jesus. Is that because we have been disobedient in praying these three great prayers, these three great requests, that God would hallow his name, that his kingdom would come, and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven? Will you commit with me this week at least, maybe throughout Lent, let's make this our daily prayer to walk through the Lord's prayer together from now until Easter and pray these great prayers. Well, there's another table of prayers, another three requests, and they go like this. Give us this day our daily bread, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we're praying for bread and for forgiveness and for deliverance. More broadly, we're praying for provision and mercy and protection. And these pertain to our whole lives in some sense, past, present, and future. A present need of provision, that's the bread. A need to be rid of a bad past, that's forgiveness. And a good future, that's protection and deliverance. But first, Jesus says, pray for daily bread. Pray for daily bread. See, in Jesus' day, this was a no-brainer because every, they're an agrarian economy. Every day, if they worked in the fields, was payday. You got paid every day. And so you prayed that you would get your portion of the grain that would come in. 
And if there was some kind of calamity, some kind of disease, some kind of storm, then there's a good chance you and your family didn't eat that day. So this, this is how they prayed. This is how many people around the world still pray today. So when we pray, God, give us our daily bread. The hour's big. We're praying that God would bring bread to the world, to the suffering and poor of the world. Martin Luther taught us how to expand that in his, his prayer. He said, we pray for bread, we're praying for everything necessary for the preservation of this life, like food, a healthy body, good weather, house, home, wife, children, good government, and peace. That God may preserve us from all sorts of calamities, sickness, pestilence, hard times, war, revolution, and the like. And a, two great times to pray this, this request. Before meals. Do you, do you pray before you eat? You should. Or after you eat? Or both? You should. You should stop and thank God that he has given you daily bread. And you should ask that he would provide for you and your family and for those in need, bread. It's a great way to start your day, too, to just pray. Expand that prayer and look at your day and say, God, I need your help. I'm traveling today. I need your safekeeping. I need daily provision. God, I need you. You know, I can't even keep my own heart beating, God. I'm totally dependent on your provision for me. Then it says, pray for mercy, for forgiveness of our debts or our sins. Um, that's the practice of confession. It's for us to be a daily one. It's how I typically end my day. I find that I sin most days. I'm being charitable. I sin every day. And so I have something to confess every night at the end of my day. And I give thanks for God's kindness, and I confess my sins. It's how I end my day. And there are excellent prayers towards this end in the Lenten devotional that was sent out to you called The Journey of the Cross. It'll be on our website tomorrow, I trust. Um, but it, is, um, it was emailed to you. Fabulous daily devotional. I am loving it. I hope you'll join me in it for the rest of the time up until Easter. It's absolutely outstanding, and the prayers of confession are so helpful. I relate to them so, so much. Um, that should be part of our daily, daily rhythm of prayer. Now, it's odd to us that Jesus would seemingly condition this on being willing to forgive others. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Um, and if that isn't clear enough, he says it again at the end of the prayer. If you forgive others their trespasses, your Heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't, He won't. And if that's not enough, Jesus tells this fabulous story about a guy's forgiven a million dollar debt. And as soon as he's forgiven, he goes out and he won't forgive somebody, just a paltry sum. John Piper helps us when he says the point of these kind of verses is that we hold fast, if we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, We'll be handed over to the tormentors. He says, we'll lose heaven and gain hell. The reason is not because we can earn heaven or merit heaven by forgiving others, but because holding fast to an unforgiving spirit proves that we do not trust Christ. If we trust him, we will not spurn his way of life. If we trust him, we'll not be able to take forgiveness from his hand for our million-dollar debt and withhold it from our $10 debtor. Another writer says, this is consequence, not condition." And then he says, but the consequence is almost like a condition. Right? 
It's really close. Um, is confession a regular part of your daily practice? It, it should be. Is forgiveness a regular part of your relationships? Is there someone that you're reluctant or even unwilling to forgive? Jesus says in the strongest of terms, you should really forgive. And if, and if you haven't, then today I can think of nothing more important than for you when you leave this place and get home to open up to Matthew 18 and read that parable and think about what Jesus is calling you to do and who he is calling you to forgive. Lastly, we pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And again, a lot of confusion here. Would God lead us into temptation? And people miss the whole point of the prayer, chasing that rabbit. That's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is not that God will lead us into temptation. The request is that God not lead us into temptation. Another way to say that is God lead us into righteousness. Lead us into good paths where we will not be tempted. Um, and so I think that's really the emphasis of what he's saying there. We need God, these prayers are saying. We need him for our physical, physical needs. We need grace for our sins and grace when those to give to those who sin against us. We need rescue from Satan who seems to be setting traps all around us every, every day. Every day. Practically, how can prayer assume its rightful place in your busy days? Let me make a suggestion. Not in your car. If you pray in your car, keep praying in your car. I'm glad you pray in your car. But just know that when Jesus talks about a secret place, to be undivided and devoted wholly to the Lord, it's not multitasking in your car. You're multitasking in your car. And studies have shown that if you're multitasking, you're bad at it. Okay? Multitaskers are worse at everything than people who don't multitask. They're even worse at multitasking. Okay? So pray in your car, but find a place elsewhere. Luther says... To his barber, he says, a good and attentive barber keeps his thoughts, attention, and eyes on the razor and hair and does not forget how far he has gotten with his shaving or cutting. If he wants to engage in too much conversation or let his mind wander or look somewhere else, he's likely to cut his customer's mouth, nose, or even his throat. Thus, if anything is to be done well, it requires the full attention of all one's senses and members. As the proverb says, he who thinks of many things thinks of nothing and does nothing right. How much more does prayer call for concentration and singleness of heart if it is to be good prayer? So says Martin Luther. It's good advice. Okay? Pray in the car. Pray as you shower. Pray as you walk. But find a time in a secret place where you can devote yourself to. That practical suggestion comes from Martin Luther. Now, let me give you one practical way that I found helpful if you want to be faithful to pray for those people and things that God has put before you. Because most of us, we need to pray for our families. There are people at work we want to pray for. There are distant relatives to pray for. There are issues to pray for. There are neighbors to pray for. There are sick to pray for. There are pastors to pray for. Okay? We can't do that every day. Most of us don't have time allotted for prayer to pray that every day. So we kind of pray kind of pell-mell whenever we think of it. I think you can do better than that if you'll establish a weekly rhythm. Let me show you how to do it. If you'll take the piece of paper that's before you, this special piece of paper that was given to you, 
hold it landscape before you. <clears throat> I hope you're doing this with me because there will be a test later. Hold it in front of you. Now take it thusly and fold it in half. If you need help, guys, ask your seven-year-old who's sitting next to you. Okay, you fold it in half, correct? I want you to fold it again in half so that it looks like this. Okay, you with me? No airplanes, just fold it in half twice. What you are now holding is a prayer list. You have eight columns on this prayer list. One for every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, etc., and one for daily. And you write that across the top. So you would write daily. And you write the things you have to pray for every day, like your family and your pastor. You know, stuff you're going to pray for every day. And then everybody else gets one day a week. So you're praying for um, your coworkers on Monday. You're praying for your neighbors on Tuesday. You're praying for your aunts and uncles on Wednesday. And you take this thing, you write it out that way, you're praying about abortion on Thursday. You're praying for a missionary that you've adopted on Friday. Okay? And you put this thing in your Bible, and when it's time to pray, you pull it out, and shazam, you know what to pray for. Okay? It's not a law. You won't do it every day. You don't need to confess if you don't. But it is a structure that helps you be faithful to what God's calling you to do. Here's an example. This is from um, 20... Five years ago, probably. I've, I've been doing this process for about three decades. Um, on Wednesday, I was praying for some old friends. And on Thursday, I was praying for some missionaries we were, and my non-Christian friends. And on Friday, I was praying about some important issues for us, things that were going on in Eastern Europe and South Africa at that time, and the abortion issue um, 30 years ago. Those were things that God had before me. Now, here's a little bit more standard format that I sometimes give to people. On Thursday, you might pray for some big issues that are before our country and nation and world. Um, missionaries, uh, people in your small group. On Friday, you might pray for the community in which you live and issues that are facing our community. For local churches and schools. You might pray for your extended family on Saturday. And pray for pastors in the community on Sunday. Sunday's a great day to pray for pastors, by the way. Um, but that allows you a rhythm and structure that I hope will be helpful to you. All right? We need to do two things. I need to do two things, and we'll close. First, forgive me, I've kept you late. But there's something that's so very important that I want you to leave without it. Um, everything, everything in this prayer um, hinges on two little words. Our Father. In fact, some people refer to this prayer as the Our Father. It's what they call it. For God to be your father means that you have placed your faith in his son. You come into a relationship with the father through the son. You believe that the son bore your sins because you could not. And he paid for them. Such that you could be adopted into God's family as a son or a daughter. And th therefore you, as Jesus' sibling almost, are able to call God father even as he is. That incredible privilege of calling God Father comes to us through the Son. And so we want to close our time together celebrating that. I'm going to ask you to come forward in just a minute and take of the bread and take of the cup and remember the price that was paid for you so that you could pray, Our Father who art in heaven. And if you're here today and prayer's not working for you, it doesn't make sense for you, it will never make sense to you until you come to the Father through the Son. 
And you can do that during this time as well. Just confess your sins and ask and place your trust in Christ who bore your sins on the cross. But if you'll bow with me in prayer, we'll come to the table together. Father, we approach this table. We approach you and we say, Our Father, because Jesus died a hellacious death on that cross in our place. Not for his sins, but for our own. And so we want to remember and honor and treasure and celebrate and worship him in this act. And so together we remember that on the night on which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It's broken for you. You do this to remember me. In the same way, after the meal, he took a cup and he said, this cup contains my blood, the new covenant that's in my blood, shed for the forgiveness of sins. Do this also in remembrance of me.